Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and as always, we are going to be talking about science and skepticism. Now, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, before we get started tonight with talking about fun and interesting stories, I just want to acknowledge some of the news that has been coming out from the current Republican president. And so, of course, one of those things is that he is apparently uh, planning on and has basically started already to uh, gut the Endangered Species Act, despite the fact that this law has had broad appeal across the entire spectrum of Americans, uh, both on the left and the right. Over 50% of people are strongly in favor of it, and I think another 30% are mostly in favor of it. I think only about 3% or so were strongly opposed to it. And that's of people from all across the spectrum. Now, I don't really have much to say about this because it's this isn't the kind of thing that has two sides. There are no two sides to this story. Um, I would hope that everyone listening to this show right now finds this move utterly appalling. The only reason to support such a move is if you are interested in greed and enjoy the rich being able to get richer uh, by being able to callously disregard nature and the uh, enjoyment of said nature for future generations. And so, yeah, there's just nothing, there's nothing to talk about. This is just, uh, it's almost, if you really want to uh, be a little hyperbolic about it, it's just pure evil. <laughs> um, obviously, that is hyperbolic, but um you know, I think it is very clear that there is n- absolutely no uh, debate here. It is just that is a terrible, awful thing to do, and that's full stop. Um, now, as always, I do like to focus more on uh, the interesting and fun parts of uh, the. Um, world, especially in science and things like that. Um, and I do that because I think there's so much hopelessness out there right now. And I kind of want to have at least a moment of just being like, oh, that's neat, rather than, oh, God, we're all going to die. <laughs> uh, and I've actually had a personal brush uh, with such callous disregard for nature uh, recently. And so I really want to try and move forward rather than dwell on the loss of natural wonders by unthinking members of the planet's most non-symbiotic species. Yeah, humans, we're not very good at sharing this world with anything or anyone. Uh, but a few more things to say before we get into today's stories, because I think it's important that while I mostly maintain a kind of positive attitude about all of these 
about science and skepticism and, you know, talking about how it's important and how we can do things so that we can have a better world. I think it's important not to uh, simply let those things that are bad go by without comment. And so I would also like to remind everyone that the easiest way to avoid mass shootings is to limit individuals' access to semi and fully automatic weapons, especially those that have extended magazines. There is no reasonable argument for such weapons, not even against swarms of wild boar, as the internet was quick to find out this past week. There is also very good evidence to suggest a causal link between misogyny, domestic violence, and potential future gun violence. On the other hand, there is virtually no causal link between mental illness and gun violence. Mental illness is a huge and varied category of ailments that range from mild to severe, and many people will suffer from some form of mental illness in their lives. One in five people will experience a bout of clinical depression. Having a mental illness does not necessarily make you more prone to gun violence. And in fact, only 3 to 4% of all of the violent acts committed in a given year are committed by people who have been diagnosed with a mental illness such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or even depression. And in addition, mental illness rates tend to hold fairly steady across countries. And thus, the only difference between those other countries and this one is absolutely and 100% the fact that we allow regular citizens act access to a much larger array of large caliber, large capacity, and fully and semi-automatic weaponry. This is just a fact. Um, you know, we always talk in science about how we don't like to say anything is actually a fact um, because there's always wiggle room. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, our lax gun laws are absolutely 100% the reason why we have this problem. And I'm not anti-gun, um, though I like to always quip that, like Molly Ivins, I'm pro-knife, not uh, anti-gun. But, um, you know, I think that there is a place for guns. I have shot a gun before. I think that guns uh, can be used for hunting in a respectful and reasonable way. Um, I am dubious of the idea of keeping one for personal safety. Um, all of the, uh, All of the research I've seen on that shows that you're more likely to be harmed um, by having a weapon in your home, especially one that's in a place that's easily gotten to uh, where people usually do that if they have a gun, quote unquote, for safety. Um, I think that there is a time and a place for uh, guns. And I just think those times and places are much much, much more restricted than uh, people in this country seem to believe. And I take actually, <laughs> it's funny because I often don't take a strict um, originalist view on the Constitution. I think that that's often silly because they lived in an extremely different time than we do. Um, but on this one, I'm going to say that I take an extremely uh, originalist view of the Second Amendment amendment. And it was clear that that was meant to supply men 
who were a standing army in order to protect the country. It was not meant to say that every person in the entire country was allowed to have whatever gun they wanted. Um, And I think it's ridiculous to try and interpret it that way. Um, But let's just uh, say that that's that's my position. Obviously, views and opinions, only my position. Uh, And so um, I think that that's really important to remember personally. Uh, and so I don't want to dwell too much on this because this isn't a politics show. Uh, if you want to talk more about politics, that will be coming up, uh, right after this show on civil politics. Um, just one more bonus fact, by the way, um, because there has been some talk about, you know, invasions, especially in Texas. Uh, and I just want to remind people that that is mindless fear mongering, uh, And even if Mexican people were trying to invade Texas, uh, that they'd simply be trying to take back what was already stolen from them by the United States citizens previously via the tactic of illegal immigration. And so if you remember your, uh, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade history, basically a bunch of American slave owners, uh, decided that they were going to go and live in Texas, which was part of Mexico at the time. And at some point, they decided that, okay, we've got enough of us now, we're going to appeal to the government to take this land for us. Um, And so yeah, not, not really a uh, not really the the history that Texans today are trying to sell you. Um, But anyways, that is all for the uh, tragic current events of recent. Uh, let's let's move on now and and do what we normally do around here, which is talk about cool things, uh, interesting new uh, research and things that don't make you just want to curl into a ball and cry without stop. <laughs> so let's start with a story about sleeping trees. That sounds much more <laughs> uh, fun to talk about than any of those other things. So the study was published in the Frontiers of Plant Science, and it was part results of an experiment on trees and part a proof of concept for a new kind of imaging technology. Andras Zelinsky of the Center for Ecological Research in Tahani, Hungary, and his colleagues scanned trees in Austria and Finland with laser beams between sunset and sunrise. The laser scanning allows the research researchers to create a three-dimensional picture of the tree's movements with resolution down to centimeters. Now, the laser light, as opposed to traditional photography, also allowed for less light exposure to the trees that might have affected their natural rhythm. And so that was kind of the proof of concept that you could use this laser light to create these images and you don't have to constantly be taking flash photography pictures of them throughout the night or lighting them up with lights in order to take pictures of them throughout the night. The experiment is the first of its kind, said team member Etu Putunen of the Finnish Geospatial Research Institute in Masala. These studies have only been done before in small plants, but here it was possible to do it outside in fully grown trees. 
And so they actually took careful measurements from two birch trees. The Austrian tree was surveyed 77 times, or around once every 10 minutes throughout the night, and the tree in Finland was scanned 11 times, or around once an hour. They found that both trees drooped over the course of the night, reaching their lowest point as much as 10 centimeters at the tip a few hours before dawn. It was a very clear effect and applied to the whole tree, says Zelinsky. No one has observed this effect before at the scale of whole trees, and I was surprised by the extent of the changes. Now, the work was done on calm nights to avoid wind. That might have, of course, skewed the data, um, because if the wind is blowing, that's going to change the orientation of the branches. And it was also performed on the solar equinox so that there would be roughly the same amount of night. Now, the team is confident that the effect is caused by the tree itself and not by, for instance, the moon's gravity or some other external effect. Um, There has been some idea that the moon could have effects on things other than just the tide. But again, a lot of those effects are micro effects. They're not really, um, there's a whole thing that goes into sort of how the moon affects um, tides and things like that. Now, they suggest that the drooping effect is most likely caused by loss of internal water pressure within the cells, which is called turgor pressure. It means branches and leaf stems are less rigid and more prone to drooping under their own weight, says Zelensky. Now, this would make sense because turgor pressure is linked to photosynthesis, which of course shuts down overnight due to the lack of sunlight. Now, the trees may just also be resting. Uh, They strain towards the sun in the daytime to catch the maximum amount of light, and that's energy intensive. Um, And so there's no reason to waste such energy at night when there is no reward. Now, of course, what's yet to be determined is whether or not the phenomena is an active part of the tree's circadian rhythm or if it's a passive process based on the difference in availability of light and water during the night. So it could be that the, um, that the tree is actually actively, through some sort of uh, mechanism, making their, um, you know, allowing the limbs to droop. Or it could just simply be that there's less water, there's less light, so there's less pressure, and then it just, you know, they just naturally and passively droop because there isn't enough going to them in order to stay as rigid as they do during the day. And so the next step for the team is to see if this activity is found in other species of trees. Zelensky is confident that they will find it in other species of trees. Now, because researchers have found genes linked to circadian rhythms in poplars and chestnut trees, uh, these would be the ideal targets for future, ref- for future research. There have been some studies on circadian rhythms in trees, mostly studying gene expression, but this latest research is a beautiful way to watch it happen in individual trees, says C. Robertson McClung of Dartmouth College, uh, who is not involved in the study. It shows things are happening in the real world. Now, of course, there are also practical benefits to this, um, though I have 
made my little soapbox speech about that <laughs> at times about how, you know, there doesn't need to be a practical reason for knowing these things. But knowing how trees manage water could, for instance, be helpful to climatologists to better understand the effects of forests on climate change and weather. So that could be really helpful. And so uh, speaking of drooping in plants, let us move on now to talk about something that is very important, um, but really hasn't been well understood until now. And it's one of those things that you're like, really? Nobody knew how that worked? <laughs> that seems like such a basic thing. And so it is how are seed plants with deep root systems able to sense the earth's gravity and thus grow downward properly? Uh, so basically, how do roots find the find down? Uh, and so plant biologists at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria, have identified crucial steps in this process, which apparently only developed around 350 million years ago to enable fast and efficient gravity driven root growth. The research published in Nature Communications looks into the evolutionary history of root gravitropism. Now, plant life first spread to land from the sea around 500 million years ago. And so in order to thrive on land, where they, of course, have to search for water, uh, plants needed to develop root systems that grow downward following gravity. They needed to do this for two important reasons. We note, uh, we've already noted that they needed to find water uh, and nutrients to fuel the plant's growth, but they also needed to be able to anchor the plant to the soil. Now, this mechanism has been thoroughly researched in flowering plants such as Arabidosis thaliana, or thale cress, which is used as a model plant in much research. However, it's never been systematically compared across the plant kingdom. Yuzhu Zhang, a postdoc working under Professor Jiri Frum and his team, have started this work. The researchers looked at multiple plant species, including those from the lineages of mosses, lycophytes, which are club mosses and fur mosses, ferns, uh, gymnosperms, which are conifers. Um, I never know if that's gymnosperms or, it's, or if it's gymnosperms. I think it's gymnosperms, but it's a hard word to say nonetheless. <laughs> Conifers uh, and flowering plants. And so they began with the roots of each plant growing horizontally and watched for them to begin to turn downward. They found that in the most primitive of land plants, the mosses, as well as basal vascular plants, the lycophytes and ferns, uh, Basal usually means at the bottom of a tree. Uh, when you're doing evolutionary trees, the basal uh, species are at the sort of bottom of that. So they're the, the sort of uh, oldest species. And so they found that gravity-driven roots growth was slow and rudimentary. It was only the seed plants, uh, the gymnosperms, uh, the conifers and flowering plants, uh, which uh, which are those that began to appear around 350 million years ago. And so those showed a faster and more efficient form of gravitropism. Now, they studied the distinct phases of gravitropism, which is gravity perception, the transmission of the gravitropic signal, 
and the growth itself to find two crucial components which evolved together to make the system work. The first turned out to be anatomical, organelles called amylioplasts, which are densely packed with starch granules, act as sediment uh, that becomes a gravity sensor when it accumulates in the tips of of plant roots. Now, in more primitive plants, the distribution is much more uniform, and so therefore it doesn't act as a strong signal to move the root downward. So basically, there are these tiny little granules, and in the more uh, sort of Uh, later evolved plants, they actually will move into the tip of the root so that the root knows that there's all these tiny granules in one place. And that means that that one place should go downwards. But in the more primitive plants, they're just all throughout the root. And so it's much harder for the root to know, um, to use those as a signal because they're not congregated in the tip. Now, the second key is a transporter molecule for the growth hormone auxin, which is called PIN2, uh, P-I-N-2. Now, most green plants have a form of the PIN protein, but only specific seed plants have PIN2, which gathers at the shootward side of the root's epidermal cells. This allows the plant to push auxin towards the shoot and thus for the signaling to move from the place of gravity perception to the zone of growth regulation. Now that we have started to understand what plants need to grow stable anchorage in order to do in order to reach nutrients and water in deep layers of the soil, we may eventually be able to figure out ways to improve the growth of crops and other plants in very arid areas, said Zhang who joined the IST Austria in 2016. He adds, nature is much smarter than we are. There is so much we can learn from plants that can eventually be of benefit to us. So yes, I think that's always an important thing to remember is that nature has been doing these things for a long time, (laughs) for a really, really long time. And it's found some really good ways of doing things, uh, really efficient ways. That's kind of the whole point of evolution uh, is to find more efficient ways to do things. Sometimes that's not always the case. Uh, Sometimes, you know, uh, I always think of the, uh, the vagus nerve, uh, where in giraffes, it goes, all the way down from the brain down and goes around the heart in the chest and all the way back up there, uh, very long neck back into the brain. And it's just because the way that animals that they evolved from uh, evolved from animals that they evolved from uh, all the way back to sort of the initial fishes in the ocean. Uh, There was a anatomical reason why that happened and it's just been perpetuated through all of the later um, phylogenies. And so, uh, you know, that's not a smart way to do things. Um, and so, you know, having that vein be, it, it really only needs to go, I think, a few inches uh from one part of the brain to the other, but it actually makes this huge detour instead because of evolution. Um, And because evolution is conservative rather than uh, continually trying to reinvent the wheel, it's very conservative. So if it's already working, chances are uh, evolution isn't going to put any pressure on something that's already working, even if it's working in kind of a 
uh, piecemeal fashion. <laughs> um, and so we can, but there are other places where we can really, really learn uh, what is going on with the, um, with parts of nature that we can then be able to say, oh, well, that makes total sense. All right. It is time to take a break. So let us do that. And then we'll come back and we will talk about bananas. <laughs> so um, you might have re read about the fact that there is uh, sort of banana Armageddon. And uh, we're going to talk about that. So uh, do stay tuned. And uh, we will talk about bananas in just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. What did they just say? If you often find yourself asking that, you may benefit from the new audio-enhancing technology available at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Designed to work with or without a hearing aid, the new and improved audio-visual systems in our meeting rooms, along with countertop loop systems at our service desks, are some of the new technology the library now has. With federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. You'll now find hearing the librarian and guest lecturers a whole lot easier. Call 413-587-1017 or email info at ForbesLibrary.org to find out more. get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a 
Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back, and we are going to talk about bananas. So, <laughs> there is definitely uh, something going, there's, there's, there's some problems with bananas, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and so, I've actually talked about the problem with bananas before, uh, but if you don't remember that, uh, we're going to go back over it today, and if you have, I'm sorry, um, you'll just have to learn again about the woes of bananas <laughs> Um, and so let's talk about a little bit about what's happened in the past and about what's happening today. And so pretty much all commercially available bananas these days are the Cavendish varietal. And so this variety was not found out in nature. Uh, natural bananas are much smaller and full of seeds, uh, but was developed actually by Sir Joseph Paxton, the head gardener of William Cavendish, 6th Duke of Devonshire in England in the mid-1800s. <laughs> so the uh, commercially available banana that everyone associates with sort of the tropics and things like that and um, was actually developed by an Englishman in the English countryside. <laughs> Uh, in a hothouse, almost certainly. Now, this is, of course, a problem uh, because all of them are Cavendishes. <laughs> and so uh, for Western countries, the vast majority of the bananas we eat are from the same Cavendish subgroup, says Nicholas Rue, a senior scientist at Biodiversity International in France. And so they were first commercially produced in 1903, but they didn't reach prominence in the market until the 1950s. This is because another banana apocalypse has already occurred in history. And so previous to the 1950s, a variety called Gros Michel or Big Mike uh, was the banana of choice. 
it's said that it was actually tastier, uh, easier to ship, and just all around kind of better than the Cavendish. Uh, and actually, fun fact, it's one of the reasons why a lot of banana candied uh, banana flavored candies uh, don't taste right. It's because they were based on the Gros Michel, uh, not on the Cavendish. So especially in those sort of older candies that they've sort of kept up the same flavor. Uh, but in, of course, the 1950s, there was a banana apocalypse, a species of the wilt fungus Fusarium oxysporum, Uh, began to cause what came to be known as Panama disease. And it basically wiped out vast tracts of the cultivar in Central America. And so by the 60s, the Cavendish had stepped in and replaced the Gros Michel as the cultivar of choice for commercial distribution. Now, you can still find Gros Michel bananas uh, in some areas of the world, uh, but they're just not commercially uh, as viable as they used to be. Now, this, of course, brings us to today's woes about the Cavendish. Now, Panama disease, the original Panama disease is now referred to as tropical, as tropic race one. The new form of the fungus is called tropic race four, and it is more deadly than ever to banana plants. It was found in Colombia, which has declared a national emergency uh, in the country. And this is the first place in the Americas to be affected. And that's why it's such a huge issue. Uh, The country has quarantined 175 hectare acres, um, uh, sorry, 175 hectare area in the La Guajira region in the north of the country and has destroyed affected plants in an attempt to stop the infection from spreading. Unfortunately, just a minute amount of the fungus getting into your soil is enough to cause complete devastation. And in fact, the fungus has already devastated crops in Asia, Australia, and East Africa. Now, the fungus attacks the plant roots and blocks the vascular network of the plant, which basically ends up leading to internal rot and eventual death. Now, one of the big problems is that the Cavendish, with the Cavendish, is that the plants reproduce asexually. So there is very little genetic diversity among these plants. And of course, that makes them very susceptible to what is essentially a plant plague. Now, of course, this is also a product of what the banana is now. It no longer has those seeds uh, that can be used to create new plants because the seeds were bred out of the fruit to make it more palatable for consumption. Now, so it's not just, it wasn't just like, oh, that was a dumb idea. It's that, you know, they were bred to not have seeds. Um, If you look at an original banana, it doesn't look terribly appetizing at all. Um, And so bananas today are much more uh, appetizing to the average consumer. But unfortunately, that comes with downsides. What we're having is an almost apocalyptic scenario where we'll probably lose Cavendish, Sarah Gurr, Exeter University's chair in food security, uh, told Wired. Now, of course, one of the two main solutions to the problem is to create a genetically engineered banana that is resistant to the fungus. But of course, as we've seen in recent years, hysteria against genetically modified foods has often posed a problem for their acceptance into the market. And in fact, um, I read a couple of 
uh, excerpts from someone who said that they had actually worked in that research several years ago, but uh, because of the sort of increased hysteria around uh, genetically modified foods, the companies basically shelved the research because they didn't want to uh, run into people actually, you know, having some sort of issue with it. Now, the other solution is to try and find heritage varieties of bananas and to create a new commercially available uh, variety, but that would take a long time, presumably. Uh, and so, you know, it's not impossible. Uh, there are definitely heritage varieties of bananas out there. Um, there's a whole bunch of different ones that are still, you know, grown in small villages and places like that that aren't giant banana plantations. Um, and so while the Cavendish might go the way of the Gros Michel, uh, there is definitely still hope for those who love bananas, uh, and especially those who rely on them for nutritional needs, um, because that's really the, the huge issue here. Um, and so hopefully they will still be able to have bananas in the future. Now, by the way, <laughs> just as a bit of a disclosure, I don't actually like bananas. Um, I can tolerate them, but I don't really like them. Um, I, you know, people are always like, oh, here, try this banana bread. And I'm like, mm, no, I'll pass. Thanks. Um, and so, yeah, not my favorite, but obviously it's very unfortunate when something like this happens where an entire crop that is just so ubiquitous uh faces this kind of, uh, you know, plague. It's, it's not good. And there's a lot of people who actually really rely on bananas. And so um, I don't find any joy in the loss of bananas, but um, I personally will not be terribly affected. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to move on. And I do want to put a bit of a warning here. Um, I always like to try and remember to warn people when I'm going to talk about something that may or may not uh, be something they want to listen to. This isn't terrible, but um, I am going to be talking about leeches. Uh, there's not going to be anything, I'm not going to be talking about anything explicit, but if just thinking about creepy crawlies creeps you out, you know, please uh, do feel free to turn the dial for a few minutes. Um, okay. So I think that that is probably sufficient time to give people to choose whether or not to listen. Uh, so now let us talk about a new species of leech that has been discovered near Washington, D.C. And of course, here is where you insert your jokes, my friends. <laughs> uh, and so the specimen was collected back in the summer of 2015 by Smithsonian research zoologist Anna Phillips. Uh, who was on an expedition with other scientists using the time-honored tradition uh, of walking through swamps with bare legs and letting the leeches latch on in order to collect them. <laughs> and so uh, the new species has been described in the Journal of Parasitology. And so Phillips and her colleagues from the Universidad Nacional Autonoma de Mexico and the Royal Ontario Museum realized that one of the leeches was a new species, which they have named Macrobdella mimicus. And so it represents the first new species found on the continent in more than 40 years. Now, the collection was prompted by an international collaboration looking into the biodiversity 
in leech populations. Phillips is a curator of parasitic worms and invertebrate zoology at the National Museum of Natural History. The new species is olive green with orange spots and is around the length of a cigarette or just over three inches and around seven sixteenths of an inch wide, so less than half an inch wide. Uh, It has three distinct jaws, each with between 56 and 59 teeth, uh, which it uses to bite and siphon blood from humans. Now, the animals are able to consume between two and five times their body weight in blood due to expandable pockets in their intestines. Now, the species was actually named M. mimicus because it closely resembles the species M. decora, which is also found near that area. However, after genetic testing, they found that the DNA differed by as much as 6 to 11% from other specimens. And so scientists generally consider a difference of more than 2% uh, to be a sign that two specimens might be two distinct species. Anywhere from 2 to 5 is usually really uh, where people start to look into whether or not they're different. Now, this, of course, didn't immediately mean that it was a distinct species. They had to do more research. They looked for more specimens. Uh, Phillips browsed pictures on the internet uh, and found a likely candidate on Flickr. Uh, A leech on the leg of a man in South Carolina piqued her interest. Uh, Because this was not within the normal range of M. decora, even though it looked much like an M. decora. She also gathered more leeches in the state and then turned to collections belonging to the government and museums, including the Smithsonian, as well as uh, institutions in North Carolina, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Now, the Smithsonian alone holds 5,310 lots of leech specimens. And so a lot is actually one or more specimens that were collected at the same time and place. So presumably, um, and especially with uh, parasitic worms, some of those lots could be, you know, a hundred specimens. They aren't all necessarily just one specimen the way you would have with like birds or something like that. Um, Though even birds, you can have lots that have more than uh, one. So... But parasitologists rely on the arrangement of pores on the bottom of leeches' bodies to figure out just what species they are. And so looking closely, the researchers realized that the pores of M. mimicus were indeed different than those of M. decora. Now, these pores are actually used by leeches during mating. And so even though they're hermaphrodites, they actually do engage in sexual reproduction. And so the pores will secrete a mucus that allows the two leeches to stick together during the mating process. It turns out that M. mimicus has also been hiding in plain sight. And so um, the researchers found evidence of the leech in a stretch of land reaching from northern Georgia to Long Island that is neatly nestled between the range of other known medicinal or human feeding species. And it turns out that a specimen of M. mimicus was actually collected way back in 1937 in New York. It's not something new that's come up. It's something that has been there the whole time, unrecognized, she said. There is unrecognized diversity close to home. You don't have to go very far to find something new, she added. Now, the last new species in North America was cataloged in 1975. 
And of course, it's truly remarkable that a species that can be detected via external cues, though not, you know, you actually do have to look. It's not like you can just detect it by just, um, you know, seeing them in the pond. You actually have to sort of flip them over and potentially put them under a microscope, but it's still very much visual uh, that it has remained undetected for so long. And especially since this area, there's been a lot, a lot of leech collecting over the years in these areas. So it's actually amazing that it kind of uh, was able to keep under the radar. Uh, And so the next step is to further document the range and to see what geographic features may have led to the divergence of the species from others in the Macrobdella genus. And so, yeah, I think it's really cool. All right, let's let's move on and talk about an arguably much cuter animal. Now, of course, not everybody loves them. I do. I think they're adorable. Uh, So let's talk about squirrels for a second. Uh, unfortunately, I know that they can be just as much of a pest uh, and uh, is, are often considered to be nuisance animals. But again, I really enjoy them. Uh, and I especially like it when I'm able to see a black squirrel in my travels. And actually, there are several in Amherst. There are at least, I would say, at least three, if not more, uh, for instance. Now, biologists from the United Kingdom... Uh, which, by the way, is a place where our common gray squirrel is considered a hideous invasive species with a kind of shoot on sight, uh, (laughs) um, you know, sign over its head. Uh, Because, of course, Britain has these amazingly adorable red squirrels, which are a beautiful, very cute species. And then unfortunately, our grays came in and uh, they're just wreaking havoc. And so... um, it's important for them to learn more about these biologies uh, in England, especially. And so they believe they've solved the mystery of the black-coated gray squirrels. They found that the that an allele, a variant of a specific gene, which in this case is called MC1R delta 24, does not actually come from gray squirrels, which I- which are Scarus carolin carolensis, but rather from the fox squirrel, which is Scariarus niger. And so fox squirrels are usually larger and they have a reddish tone, but when this allele is expressed, the animals end up with black fur. And so Helen McRoby of the School of Life Sciences at Anglia Ruskin University uh, in Cambridge, Nancy Moncrief of the Virginia Museum of Natural History, and Nicholas Mundy of the Department of Zoology at Cambridge uh, published their research in the journal BMC Evolutionary Biology, and they hypothesized that the gene was transferred by interbreeding between the two species. Now, they note that there are three ways in which identical alleles could show up in the two distinct species. They write, First, the allele could have arisen in the common ancestor of both species and been retained by balancing selection. Second, the mutation could have arisen independently in both species, but this is also unlikely as the haplotypes are identical. Therefore, the most likely explanation is that the MC1R Delta 24 allele arose in one species and subsequently introgressed to the other species. 
And so basically the first two hypotheses are equally disqualified by the fact that the allele is virtually identical in the two species. If it had been carried over from a common ancestor, genetic drift would have changed at least some part of the gene. The odds of two species independently having evolved the identical allele is also extremely unlikely. Therefore, it makes the most sense to surmise that it was the present that it was present in one of the animals and then was transferred to the other in more recent genetic history via interbreeding. Now, the researchers found that fox squirrels had developed melanism at least twice via convergent evolution. And so the researchers thus suggest that it's most likely that the allele developed first in the fox squirrel rather than the gray squirrel. I mean, it's technically possible that it's the other way around, but it's much more reasonable to suggest that it is actually this way, that it was actually the um, in the fox squirrel and then moved to the gray squirrel. All right, so let's move on and talk about another animal that many consider kind of a nuisance, uh, the herring gull, uh, which is usually referred to uh, by the simple, uh, more simple seagull, uh, which is, of course, known for being quite the sports bird at stealing food and other items from humans, uh, especially on the beach. And so uh, just before we start talking about this, because uh, I know we have seagulls here, and this is actually a study that was done in England. So the gulls being studied were Laris argentatus, uh, which is a slightly different gull to the ones that are generally found in the U.S., which are Laris smithsoniensis. Now, um, they're pretty much, the, they're very similar. So they have pretty similar um, mannerisms and it's pretty easy to kind of compare them together. But gulls in urban areas are often considered a nuisance owing to behaviors such as food snatching, said lead author Dr. Madeline Gomez and colleagues in a study published in the journal Biology Letters. Whether urban gull feeding behavior is influenced by human behavioral cues, such as gaze direction, remains unknown. And so the study tried to resolve some of that ambiguity. Now, they did actually run into some issues when dealing with wild birds. We attempted to test 74 herring gulls. Only 20% of these, 36, only 27 of them, which is 36%, initiated the start of at least one trial. The remaining gulls either flew away soon after presentation of the food or did not approach on the ground within 300 seconds, they noted. 23, 49% of the 47 gulls did not approach during the trial, approached the food outside of the trial conditions. 19 gulls, 26% of all of those targeted, completed the trial pair, the paired trials. So they ended up with about 19 <laughs> real instances. And so the researchers are trying to see if there was a difference in time between when a gull would approach food, which in this case was potato chips, uh, depending on whether or not they were being observed or ignored. And so on average, those who were being observed took an extra 21 seconds to approach. However, there was great variability. And so the researchers cautioned that definitely much more research would need to be done in order, in order to truly reach a conclusion. Gulls are often seen as aggressive and willing to take food from humans, so it was interesting to find that most wouldn't even come near during the tests, Dr. Gormis said. 
Of those that did approach, most took longer when they were being watched. Some wouldn't even touch the food at all, although others didn't seem to notice that a human was staring at them. We didn't examine why individual gulls were so different. It might be because of differences in personality, and some might have had positive experiences by being fed by humans in the past, but it seems that a couple of very bold gulls might ruin the reputation of the rest. Senior author Dr. Nietzsche Bugert noted that gulls are easy learners, and so those who have taken food from humans in the past may be more aggressive in the future. Now, the study was conducted in Cornwall, and the researchers advised people to simply keep a weather eye out for gulls. Many gulls take food from behind people's backs or in other ways that are a surprise to the person trying to eat their hot dog or other beach food and enjoy their day. Now, of course, the research is important to conservationists, and especially in the UK, as the herring gull population has seen a 60% decline between 1969 and 2015. Herring gulls are scavengers and predators, but they're also what is called a kleptoparasite, uh, which is an animal that will steal food from both other gulls and other animals, especially people. The problem with this is that their kleptoparasitic activities have caused them to come into conflict with humans. And of course, in such cases, it's the gulls that suffer uh, with extermination programs. Uh, sometimes they try to import birds of prey, which actually doesn't work very well, but is still, you know, something that's trying to uh, kill the gulls. And so figuring out how uh, people can truly be able to uh, deal with this by finding out how the gulls truly behave, they can help start to find solutions that will keep the gulls out of human trouble while maintaining their populations. So it's really important to do these kinds of studies where you're able to really figure out what's going on with them. Um, so we are almost out of time and uh, Civil Politics is coming up with a guest um, for who is running for local office. I believe it's the Ward 7, um, but I'm not 100% positive about that. I apologize. But please do stay tuned for Civil Politics anyways, because it's a lovely show. Um, I didn't get to talk about another tale of heartwarming uh, gay male penguins, uh, but I'm sure that you all have known about that before. Uh, I just always like talking about them because it's adorable and heartwarming. Um, and so uh, just to, just very quickly at the uh, Zoo Berlin, there is another couple, Skipper and Ping, uh, who are currently sitting on an egg, uh, which unfortunately may or may not be fertilized. I'm going to be heartbroken if it wasn't fertilized personally. Um, but hopefully they will be able to raise a chick at some point. Um, but that is all the time I have for tonight. I will uh, be back next week with more science and skepticism. Have a great evening. This show is a member of the Planetside Productions Network. Find out more at planetside.pro. Our theme song is Widgeon by the artist Bird Boy. Find more of his music at smarturl.it forward slash birdboy.